Hey guys, how's it going? Welcome, welcome. This is the NTT20 Monday podcast. Ali Maxwell and George Ellick. We are here to talk all things EFL. On today's episode, it's going to feel quick, I hope, swift, because we're really chuffed to have been joined midway through this podcast by Tim Keach from Market Insights. There's been a bit of chat on social media over the weekend about the effect of Brexit on EFL transfers and the transfer market and the movement of players. And we haven't discussed that at all. We have completely ignored it to our detriment. And thankfully, in 10 minutes, Tim was able to explain things really clearly. So midway through the pod, a really, really valuable chat with Tim from Market Insights about Brexit and EFL transfers. I think you guys will find that really interesting. Before then, we're going to talk championship. After it, we'll talk League One and League Two. We are reviewing the weekend, but forgive us if we are slightly less detailed than usual. We're trying to get through things a little quicker today with an interview in the pod and trying to hit that beautiful one hour mark so it's not getting too lengthy for you. But it was a brilliant weekend in the EFL. Another week, George, with some incredible goals on show from Karoma and Rothwell in the Championship, Naylor and Dale in League One and Ash Hunter as well in League Two with a, another eye-catching goal for him. Before we get into the weekend action, George, you've played an absolute blinder to set up a piece of content in the second half of the week that we are very, very excited about. Uh, yeah. And we want all the listeners to get involved with. Are we, are we announcing it now? I think we should announce it now. NTT 20 questions announced. Love it. So, what yeah. is NTT 20 questions? Th- Thursday will be the first ever. It might be the last ever, depending on how it goes. But we have managed to secure the services of two currently out of work, but very highly respected EFL managers to join us over Zoom uh, for a Q&A. So we are going to ask you, the listener, to send in your questions. And we'll also take questions as we go as well. And uh, so the four of us will be on a call together, probably last about an hour from seven o'clock on Thursday. And the two guests we have for Thursday are, drumroll please, Paul Cook and Danny Cowley. Hey! So it's going to be awesome. It's going to be the four of us on a call. Um, We'd have asked, yeah, we'll, we'll take some of the questions that we get from you guys in the next couple of days and choose our favourite ones and we'll use those. I don't know yet if we're going to try and make it 20 questions just to fit with the name of the uh, of the show or if we're just going to go for questions. But NTT 20 questions will launch on Thursday. Do check our Twitter account for all details, uh, presumably quite soon if we're announcing it now. We'll put, up, put them on, on up there. But 7 o'clock Thursday evening. Put it in your diaries. There's nothing else to do that evening. No EFL football, some Europa League stuff that no one really cares about, although it is kind of the EFL of, of European football, I guess, and to, <laughs> to an extent. Maybe we should do a Europa League podcast. I'm up for it. Interesting. Anyway, that is another project that's on the back burner then. But um, do, yeah, get ready. Seven o'clock, Danny Cowley, Paul Cook, Ali Maxwell, George Ellick on Not the Top 20 Questions. And your questions as well really looking forward to that George has organized it magnificently I'm going to take on the technical side of things I'm still trying to work it out guys but I think we will be streaming live on our YouTube channel NTT 20 pod or not the top 20 podcast you can subscribe now and make sure that you are across it from seven to eight on Thursday of course you'll be able to watch it back as well but you won't be able to interact live with us really excited about that it's an exciting week because of that we've got some midweek action as well in the championship and we are going to talk now about the weekend that was and we're going to talk about the championship teams starting with the two sides that picked up two wins in a week six points for Stoke 
and for Cardiff. Uh, we'll start with Stoke, who beat Middlesbrough 1-0. This was a big game uh, between two sides with designs on the playoff places at the very least this season. Uh, a great win for Stoke. Two 1-0 wins in a week. One against Mid- uh, one against Wickham in midweek, the game we were at, George. And they, I think it's fair to say, were not at their most impressive or best in midweek. This win was a little more impressive. Uh, and George, Liam made the point, and I want your response here, that on the betting show, George said, Borough were a better version of Stoke. But on yesterday's showing, they aren't. <laughs> yeah, I mean, fair enough. I would say that an isolated 90 minutes of football isn't necessarily all the evidence you need to say that one team is better than the other. And on the basis of Saturday, you know, that's not evidence that Stoke are going to finish with more points than Borough. Um, but they were impressive here. Again, they've, they've won two games in a row, both um, clean sheets. Both goals were, as we would expect, balls into the box, headed home. Nathan Collins with this one. I think I was quite surprised to see the lack of defensive organisation from Borough to allow him to have that header. And even I thought Bettinelli probably could have done better with it as well, given it. he seemed to think it was going to come a lot harder at him than it did, and he kind of mistimed his jump. But um, that's not to take anything away from Stoke. I, th- I think the one thing we can say about Borough is because they are going to be fairly reliant on their defensive record, I think when they play against sides like Stoke, who are pretty comfortable defensively, that kind of defensive aberration of of a couple of weeks seems now to have passed with Stoke and they're back to being their solid selves I think Borough are are probably a side who are going to struggle to come from behind quite often in games unless they're playing against a team who are happy to to continue coming on to them um, even when they're ahead but uh, yeah I I was clearly wrong about the game on the betting show Uh, interesting to see the two fullbacks combining for the goal Mm. Um, I thought Fox was really poor when we saw them in midweek and I wasn't that keen on Cousins' performance either and I saw that both of them uh, very impressive in this game. I was not surprised to see Sam Vokes drop to the bench. He looked very immobile in midweek. He didn't cause Wickham's defenders the problems that they would have wanted him to and he was barely involved uh, in the game. So I guess it was interesting to an extent that that Michael O'Neill decided not to take the sort of physical battle to Middlesbrough's defence and to go with uh, Brown through the middle, uh, who's who's not going to sort of bosh them around as much, although he's decent in the air for a for a player of his size. Um, that was interesting. It shows that you know that he's not obsessed with always playing a target man up top, and uh, it'll be interesting to see what they do going forward with Fletcher still out. Interesting that Danny Barth, Nick Powell, and Sam Klukas all came off with injuries. Ah, um, obviously we don't know how serious they might be. For all we know, um, they might be okay. I think Klukas is the one who looks like he might be out for a while. Uh, which would not be good news mm. for Stoke. So Another but, side suffering from injuries at the mm, moment, I think it's fair yes, to say. Yeah. And they have got a, a, a deeper squad, I think it's probably fair to say, than a, a lot of pl- a lot of teams in the division, but Michael O'Neill making full use of it and just doing such a wonderful job there. Um, Watford nil, Cardiff won. Not a classic. One shot on target for each side in this one, but Cardiff ride again. And look, what a response from Neil Harris to those first murmurings of has it gone stale for Neil Harris at Cardiff and could it be time for a change? Harris has taken one look at that and said, hold on, I took you to the playoffs last season after you started the season poorly. Now I'm going to rattle off three wins in a row without conceding and all of a sudden Cardiff in the top half, just a few points off the playoffs. And it's kind of interesting, George, we've mentioned it a couple of times over the last few weeks, not always in praise of Harris, but somewhat sometimes using it um, almost to, to, to rib him slightly. He was talking about 
underlying performance metrics during that poor run and basically saying how I want to, in, in the way that I want to measure our performances, what I think we need to do in order to be in, in a good position to win games. He was like, we are mostly doing those things. We're just poor in both boxes. And, you know, it's interesting to see that it's gone the other way. They've been a bit a bit better in both boxes and they've rattled off three wins in a row. So good to see in, in a way, you know, we don't see too many managers talking about underlying numbers, although they are much more au fait with them than they were when we first started this podcast. And I quite like that. Yeah, it feels like this This was a classic case of pay attention to the data when you're a manager struggling and the data says you're doing an okay job. It's amazing how many managers seem to suddenly decide that they like XG when the XG is saying, we're actually paying all right, guys. Um, yeah, but it can also be a way of saying, you know, don't let heads drop in the dressing room. Definitely. We are doing fine. And genuinely, if you keep putting in a performance like the last few, yeah. you're not going to lose every game. So don't get disheartened. Absolutely. Yeah, I agree with that. And, and you know, Neil Harris has now won three games on the bounce again without conceding. Um, I think this Watford result is probably better than maybe it looks because even though Watford have picked up a lot of points up to this stage of the season, we've spoken a fair bit how they've been pretty unconvincing in the way that they play and the way that they... Um, failed to really dominate games but they haven't lost at home so far this season they haven't failed to score at home so far this season for even even with their clear kind of failings in some areas of their game Cardiff have managed to do something that no other team had done at Vicarage Road so far uh, it helps that they've got in Kiefer Moore a, a manager sorry a manager I'm aiding aging him a bit there um, they've got a striker who we know when a team is set up in the right way to, to create chances for him. He can be prolific, but he's also a striker. We've also seen have barren spells as well. And, and we're kind of seeing a development in his time at Cardiff already where, you know, he's now scored five in his last five, I think it is. Um, he's getting on, you know, he's he's the key attacking um, target, both at set pieces and in open play, which... The key for Cardiff. He is the key. He, I always say he's the key for more points for Cardiff. There you go. Um, I think it's worth just mentioning because he's such a recognisable name, for us, we've spoken about him with Rotherham in 1718, with Barnsley in 1819, with Wigan in 1920, and now this season with Cardiff. But it's worth acknowledging that, you know, he's becoming a really established championship striker, almost getting to the point of being something of a star striker in championship terms, yeah. not just in goal return numbers, but in what he does overall. And that's quite an amazing journey that he's been on. He, he's he's had a, a, you know, it's been a hell of a slog to get to this point and a lot of knockbacks. Um, and, you know, he's clearly find, found the right place for him. Uh, and certainly for Cardiff, he is the right man up top and holding off Glatzel at the moment, who came off the bench in midweek and scored a magnificent goal, um, but not getting in front of Moore at the moment. For, for Watford, you know, the performance is not getting any better, I think it's fair to say, and the results starting to fall in line with that. We, we were, we have been told, or we were being told, that things would surely improve when players returned, a lot of those attacking players, certainly. Uh, that hasn't been the case. I note that, you know, Kapu came back for a few games and then he's been out again, so he will presumably make a difference. Will Hughes is still to come back in and start starting football matches and could make a difference, but... I don't think at this point we can say it's a guarantee. Uh, and big Vlad, Ivi Vlad Ivic seems to be trying a lot at the moment, chopping and changing a fair bit, trying different shapes and personnel. Nothing quite clicking at the moment. So that's something to watch no. out for for the next few weeks. Uh, for the rest of the championship, George, because we are looking for 
swiftness for pace <laughs> not an attribute uh, generally associated with us either as athletes or as podcasters uh, I want to take a lucky dip approach to the rest of the results in the championship you can have the first pick in the draft you can tell me what you'd like to talk about and then I'm not allowed to talk about that game I just have to move on to the to the next game I've got two I want to talk about and it's which one do I choose um, I'm going to choose Reading Forest and I'm not going to lay in too much to Forest here because they, you know, they went down to 10 men after 15 minutes and that is a very difficult task at the best of times and they are in the midst of the worst of times. They've lost five games in a row. Um, I was on Five Live on Saturday and Chappers and I on Sports Report did a, did a fair bit on, on Forest and my point there was kind of there seems to be this feeling with Chris Hewton that he is a manager who guarantees stability um, but that I think is a bit unfair on Hewton because he's got a mammoth task on his hand here of of getting Forrest out of a desperate situation and the idea that failing to do so isn't him doing what he does is a bit difficult and this again was an example of of them kind of not really showing up and and you know is a silly red to to get especially so early in an important game but I think this is more kind of about about Reading and again it's easy you have to caveat Reading's recent form with the fact that they've played their last two games majority against 10 men I know they didn't get the result at Hillsborough midweek, but they quite clearly deserved it. Um, they created plenty of chances to win the game. They should have had penalties in the second half as well. But for the first time, I'm now I'm doing like a complete 360 on Reading, where I, I just now think they are a side who who looks so good, who just looks so assured in possession. I still think there there are issues I have defensively. I'm not convinced that that back four of, of more Morris and Holmes and Richards will stand up to the best attack attacking forces in the league. But just in terms of, of a team in possession with kind of Ajaria, Olise, Lauren, all kind of able to interchange positions, it, it's really exciting to watch. And, and you know, Zhao stays fit and stays scoring. So just credit to them here. They managed the game so easily. It was never really in doubt. The victory after they went ahead with the penalty, there were no scares really at the other end. Um, so credit to Vyko Paunovic. I think this Reading side we're seeing now is a lot better than the one we saw at the beginning of the season. I've got so much I want to say, but I'm not allowed to. That, that's the rules. I'm going to talk about Coventry 3, Rotherham 1. Previewed this one on Totally Football League Show Extra Time because I like it when teams come up together and you, you sort of compare their fortunes with each other and, and play them off each other, I guess, to, to work out who's doing well and what level they're at. And Coventry and Rotherham were a good case study for this, uh, both up from League One last season. There was one point between them, just above the relegation zone, both sides. Uh, and Coventry won 3-1 comfortably and what a performance their best performance of the season easily and significant because you might remember last season although Coventry won the league one of the results between the two sides was a 4-0 win uh, from Rotherham uh, against Cov where they just pressed the hell out of them and Coventry who were intent on passing out from the back they couldn't handle the, the intense pressure from Rotherham they made a lot of mistakes conceded some disastrous goals and Rotherham thrashed them 4-0 and on Saturday Rotherham tried that again they tried to press the hell out of Coventry but Cov were ready for them Mark Robbins was ready for them and we've seen again a manager who is so comfortable making tactical changes not for show but just to try and make his team better either in individual games or for a month or two or for a whole season and that's what he did here you can see from passing stats on Scout, which I went through the percentage of Coventry passes that went backwards or sideways as opposed to forward was 30%. 
And the last few games, that's been 54, 55, 49, 49 and 53%. So you can see they were trying desperately to reduce the risk of getting caught out at the back not passing it backwards or sideways where possible or to a much lesser extent and instead getting it forward and hitting Biamu and Walker who played up front together, played close together and just did so much damage. Biamu contested 23 attacking duels, mostly with Ahikwe and in fairness to Ahikwe, he won the majority of them but they kept they kept doing it, they kept doing it. And then one found the chest of Walker, Biamu running in behind, great movement, that did the damage. So those two linking up really impressively. Callum O'Hare and Nuisance buzzing around them as ever. Um, Niall, a Rotherham fan, said in a Sunday scouting report that Gustavo Harmer uh, played like Gattuso. I love that. So I'm going to start calling him Gennaro Harmer now. Uh, I don't want you guys to get confused and think that I'm getting that wrong. Gennaro Harmer is his new NTT20 nickname. But yeah, I wanted to celebrate Mark Robbins. Uh, this was a tactical win um, to a pretty large extent. And I want to celebrate Max Biamu as well. I want to shout out Ram Srinivas, uh, who also works for Market Insights, like Tim, who we talked to in a bit. Is this the Market Insights pod now? Basically? It could be. <laughs> New it, sponsor. It feels like a sponsorship, but really, <laughs> really, we're just using them for content purposes because Ram flagged up. He said, read Max Biamu's Wikipedia page and just think about the career that he's had. And on his wiki page, here's what it says. Biamu's early career was impacted by adductor injuries and he played no football for three years while studying at university. He later played football locally in Bonneuil-sur-Marne before spending his early career in French non-league football with Villemomble and Yzeure and later moved to England and joined Sutton United. So, George, this striker joined Sutton aged 25. He'd never played professionally, had a good season with them, moved to Coventry, won promotion from League Two. He was a key man. Then tore his ACL in that first League One season, missed basically the whole campaign. He was a bit part player, you'd say, in last year's promotion. And now three tiers above where he first joined English football only four years ago, he's causing championship defences all kinds of problems. What an incredible journey. Definitely someone I want to talk to on the pod at some point in future. Max Biamu is getting all of my praise this week. What a man, what a player. A great win for Kov. Next up, George. Next up is Huddersfield against QPR, um, where it's just, it's so hard to get a grip on this Huddersfield side because... You think of this Huddersfield QPR game, or at least I do in my head, as being a, a match between two similar sides in every respect. Team Sides who can look really good going forward, who are very suspect defensively, who on their day can be anybody, but realistically that day doesn't happen often enough to be much of a, a threat towards further up the table. But Huddersfield just completely did a job on QPR here, both going forward and defensively. They restricted QPR to, to basically nothing. QPR had four shots in the whole half, three of which were outside the area. Didn't create anything of note in the whole game, which is a massive turnaround for a Huddersfield side who, even when they're playing well, often concede chances. Um, and then we have to talk about Josh Karoma, who, you know, we're not on Sky for a couple of weeks, sadly. But spoiler alert, I think when we're back on on the 18th of December, we're going to be talking about Josh Karoma because he's one of the players so far who's developing, you know, last season at Huddersfield, he was a talented guy who'd come up from the National League who showed in flashes that he was a footballer capable of playing at this level, but not consistently. He's now added goals to his game. He's added assists to his game. He's just a constant threat on the left-hand side. 
him and Toffolo have a, a brilliant partnership. It reminds me a bit of, of Kirk and Pickering at Crew, where he's so capable of coming inside and Toffolo on the overlap. But at the same time, Kremer can also go around the other way. And we saw, as with Toffolo's goal, that he's happy to come inside as well. They, It's not going to happen this season, but I think it feels like this is the foundations are being laid for something quite special at Huddersfield. And if Corbrand can continue this kind of defensive performance then there's no reason to see why they can't really kick on for the rest of the of the campaign. Yeah, I've really enjoyed Carlos Corberan as a championship manager. I have to say we, we spoke a little bit uh, at the time of Danny Cowley's sacking and Corberan's appointment, that it was bold, that it was ballsy. And from Phil Hodgkinson, the Huddersfield chairman's point of view, it, it needed to pay dividends, not just in terms of results, which are okay, they're sort of around the mid-table, but also in terms of this style of play that he seemed to be after. And in fairness, that style of play is there. Uh, The goals that they score are consistently excellent goals. So lots to like. I've broken my rule there. I've mentioned something that you mentioned. (laughs) Um, Norwich 2, Sheffield Wednesday 1. These are our league leaders at Norwich, of course. And it was the same sort of story that we've seen so many times, wasn't it? A a late pressure and calmness and composure that translated into two late goals to go from 1-0 down to 2-1 up. Um, It's so beautiful in some ways to watch this Norwich side against the low block, trying to pick holes and where so many teams fail, where so many teams lack composure and are, you know, trying to be too urgent and maybe snatch at shots or take shots too early uh, or maybe don't have the confidence to take those shots at all. Norwich just seem to consistently get it right. Um, and it always seems to be Vrancic involved, doesn't it? For a guy who actually, as much as I love him and his left foot, doesn't consistently impact games no. to the level where we could call him the best midfielder in the division. Do you know what I mean? But such an impact at the end of games, which is so important for this Norwich side and the, and how they pick up points, both in their promotion season and now as well. His two assists were magnificent. Um, one for Martin, who scored, I think, his first Norwich league goal. Um, interesting young player who they picked up off, off Arsenal. He got a bit like Josh De Silva. Martin got sort of got disillusioned, didn't feel like he was going to get a chance at Arsenal. And so he was the one to, to, to say to his agent, I want to get a move. I want first team football. I want a pathway that's more obvious to me. He's getting that at Norwich. They may benefit very well from that. And Aaron's, of course, as well, with a brilliant winning goal. They just seem to make that extra pass, uh, Norwich, that other teams don't make. Having said that, um, a lot of Norwich fans tweeted us to say Sheffield Wednesday were, were pretty impressive and and... The subbing off of Josh Windass was mentioned in more than one scouting report on Sunday as just being a bit of a bizarre decision given the, the difficulties that he was causing the Norwich back line and the fact that it was it was, it was was that move that made it such a defence versus attack game. Um, what I would say for Sheffield Wednesday is they still haven't got that first win that we spoke about last week um, and that is concerning and yet positives here. Uh, they scored the same goal twice in two games now with Reach's delivery from the left. Magnificent Windass scoring this time round in midweek. It was Patterson and I mean we didn't get the replays that I wanted on either penalty decision but I'm gobsmacked they didn't get at least one of them. Um, I so uh, I, thought, I mean know, I thought the second one especially where Francic looked nervous. I don't, and I just don't think he got anywhere near the ball. Mm, strange one. Anyway that that's what we think. Um, Barnsley got thrashed 4-0 by Bournemouth on Friday night. That game was utter carnage which you know it feels like if you were a neutral and each weekend you could watch two championship games I think I would watch a Barnsley game every weekend just automatically because whether they win or lose or draw it tends to be pretty entertaining and quite an interesting watch and Bournemouth really were 
just a bit smarter, I think. They just picked them off, didn't they? Um, made full use of any mistakes, any sloppy passing, any gaps being left at the back. Um, and George, Millwall nil, Derby won. Congratulations to Wayne Rooney and Derby. It's their first win for an awfully long time. Um, Jason Knight scoring the winning goal and, and what a good season he's having in such a, a poor team. And I wanted to shout out great performances from Christian Bielik and also from Colin Kazim Richards, who's been pleasantly surprising in his in his impact in the last few games, especially. Um, but what happened at the start of the game disgusted both of us, I think it's fair to say. And I think we've both just got a little bit to say on the matter to just put our feelings and our thoughts on record really because this is a platform that we have to do that yes um it it's been difficult i guess over the last couple of days especially because the return of fans um is such a great thing for our game and for the sport and for you know it's something we could all look forward to um so to see that kind of first saturday tarnished with people booing a gesture which is there as a sign of solidarity and unity against racial discrimination um was really troubling and seeing some of the nonsense on social media about how it's an objection towards the Marxist values of the BLM organisation is just so disingenuous. Like, it's just not the case. I mean, there's not even getting into the idea, like, whether or not that is true or BLM or anything like that. This, the, the players are doing something on a pitch to sh- show solidarity. And, and even if you think that the... The gesture itself isn't enough, even if you think that we have to go further, which is quite clearly true. Booing it is a rejection of what they are doing, is a rejection of the action they're taking. And, you know, seeing the Colchester statement today saying that, that, that fans will be banned if they boo in future is a start. But I just think people who, who think that it's in any way acceptable, I think that it's, you know, what I hate the most is people talking about freedom of speech and freedom of expression. Like, that doesn't exist Freedom of speech isn't a thing. You can't say whatever you want. If you if you are racist in what you say, if you like hate crime in itself, hate speech in itself is a crime. Freedom of speech is a myth, and so therefore voicing displeasure against people taking action against racism in itself is not just an opinion that you're allowed to have. I, I mean, I'm, I'm I kind of hope in a way there are people listening to this who are angry by what I'm saying, and I hope that they will take time to educate themselves further. Um, it's disappointing and and if anything it just goes to show that we have a hell of a lot more to do uh, in order to change the way that people think the players the day before made it very clear in a statement and this is what it said we wish to make clear that taking the knee for us is in no way representative of any agreement with political messaging or ideology it's purely about tackling discrimination as has been the case throughout so those who boo that gesture whose own whose own players those that they support have got in front of it and explained themselves, either didn't see that or chose not to see that, chose to ignore that, in which case, sadly, they've not done enough research into the taking the knee gesture uh, as it's being performed by footballers uh, around the world. So, yeah, a straw man argument, anything to do with Marxism, anything to do with looting and all that sort of stuff, it's uh, it's something that we abhor, it's something that we condemn uh, and I would also like to point everyone to that Colchester United statement written by their chairman, Robbie Cowling. I think um, pretty much everything he says um, we would agree with. We would sort of co-sign. And so please do have a look at that uh, if you'd like more on this topic. Well done to the Derby players for, for winning that game. 
Uh, and well done to the QPR players who have certainly said that on Tuesday night at the Den, they will be taking the knee as well. Uh, Birmingham beat Bristol City. Uh, this was notable, I think, although it wasn't a, a, a classic game, for a really good performance from uh, Keefton Beld of Birmingham, who, you know, he's a player who's been around Blues for quite a long time, despite a lot of changes in managers and changes in personnel. Not the most talented football player, but clearly as a character and in displays like the one on Saturday can really rouse a team. And I think that deserves some some credit. Uh, he helped, I think, Birmingham to show a, a bit more belief on the ball, a bit more bravery, I guess, a bit more attacking intent. I say all that while noting that the goal came from a set piece, Harley Dean heading home for the win. We're still looking for more open play action from Birmingham. Only four goals scored from open play so far this season, but no getting away from the fact that was an excellent result at Bristol City, uh, a Bristol City side who could have gone third, I think, with a win. A poor performance from them, good from Birmingham. Uh, and Swansea Luton's not one for us to go in detail on, George, because I think Swans and their fans, accepting of the fact that they were poor, yeah. that Luton, for the most part, played well, but in the final third, specifically with one big chance being missed, uh, and maybe just on the wrong side of a bit of luck and the odd decision... Um, yeah, I, I, I'm still positive about Swansea. Um, you know, it feels like they have fewer issues than most other teams and that their low level of performance, if this was that, is still pretty decent compared to the low level of most teams. But we won't go in too much more depth there. What we will do, George, is find out about how Brexit will impact the EFL transfer market. Tim Keach from Market Insights joining us to, to discuss that. Market Insights is a, a football consultancy uh, which was set up about 18 months ago and that we've always been really interested in, not least because uh, we know some of the guys involved. So firstly, Tim, thank you for joining us. Um, before we get into the ins and outs of Brexit and EFL transfers, can you get us up to date really about Market, how you guys are doing and, and what sort of work you guys are doing? Because I know for many of our listeners, it's really interesting. Thanks, Ali. Well, as you said, we're a football consultancy. So what that actually means in reality is we work with the owners, the sporting directors, heads of recruitment, performance analysts um, within clubs at all levels, really. So we started, as you say, 18 months ago, um, working with Swansea in the championship. Um, since then, we've grown to work all over the world, really. So some weeks we're working with quite big clubs who are playing in the latter stages of Europe. Um, the next week, we might be working with a, a small club in Asia who's got £20,000 a year to spend on recruiting the best player they can get at that level. We started with six of us, as you said, and we now have a further eight people working with us covering things like set pieces and youth recruitment and all the, the interesting areas of football. Um, it means we watch a phenomenal amount of football at all levels now. Um, but as you say, the, the 2020 has been a crazy year for everyone, um, particularly with the pandemic, obviously. We've thankfully got through that as a company, which wasn't in the business plan, but we've, uh, we've managed to get through it. For our EFL clients in particular, we've got the salary cap issue coming up. And as you say, Brexit, which is going to make strategically recruiting players even more important. I can only imagine what it's like to be in a work WhatsApp group with uh, Jay, Blades Analytic, who is an absolute whirlwind and, of course, a great friend of this pod and a, a big, big supporter of ours. Um, you guys will be trying to understand what Brexit will mean for EFL clubs in terms of recruitment. I was wondering if, to start with, I could just get a, a general explanation on how Brexit is going to affect things in the EFL transfer market. Brexit generally is hugely complicated and football is no exception. We've got a, um, 
a 30-page PDF on the FA website, um, which is released at the end of the week. And with that, even reading that, you're going to still be confused. The main issue is there's no longer going to be automatic qualification for work permits for those with EU passports. And that means no transfers under the age of 18 either, because you previously come into the country as an EU national before the age of 18. You can't do that anymore. So instead, they're shifting towards a point-based system. You need 15 points to qualify for a permit. Now, you can qualify automatically if you're a full and regular international player for a nation in the top 50 ranked FIFA nations. If you don't qualify, you then go into the points system. You, now, you get points for various things. You get points allocated based on criteria related to international appearances, that's full or youth, the quality of the league they play in, quality of the team they play for in that league, and how often they play. The reality is Premier League clubs will probably be fine. They'll be able to sign pretty much whoever they want um, under these new regulations. It's more complicated in the championship because the players that we've targeted previously at championship level don't tend to be full internationals and they aren't playing for those bigger clubs in the bigger leagues. It's much more difficult in League One and League Two. I just don't see how they're going to be finding players that they can afford who are playing in leagues they're going to get enough points there will be exceptions and that's why it's really good to be properly all over the rules and scouting in the right leagues there is enough wriggle room for it to remain a possibility to recruit overseas but it's going to be much more challenging than it has been before what sort of examples of transfers could you give us that would not be able to happen uh, from next year onwards as far as you understand it okay so some of the biggest names of the previous few years at championship and levels below would not have qualified. So, for example, if Norwich had applied for Buendia, it would not have been a good day for them. He would not have qualified. He was playing in the Spanish second division. He didn't have enough international appearances. Um, you definitely won't see players along the lines of Maxime Biano or Armand Ganandouillet. Um, they were playing kind of amateur level third tier or below football in France and moved over to trial at clubs. That's just not allowed anymore. Lincoln City's goal machine, Louis Montsmar, he would not qualify. He was playing in the Dutch second division. Basically, if you're, you aren't a youth international and you don't play in a big league, you won't get a, a permit. Um, some other examples, Marcus Force, who's just forcing himself into the, the Brentford team. He came over to England at 13 under freedom of movement rules to join West Brom. That can't happen anymore. Brian Mabumo would not qualify. At the point he joined Brentford, he only had a handful of youth caps. He was playing for a, a mid-tier League 2 team, so it's hard to see him getting enough points. Um, I think the two examples that people are most interested in are probably Ben Rama and Mope. They'd have been very close. We we have them coming out at 12 points each, and you need 15 to qualify. I think probably what we'll see is a change of behaviour. So some of the clubs abroad will become wise to the decisions and the work permit process in England. So both those players were signed ultimately from Nice. That was the parent club, although they were both out on loan. If Nice had played them for even one minute in the year before they sold them to Brentford, they would have qualified for a work permit through the, the complexities of the system about what league and how long you need to play. Um, the margins are really slim and it's going to be up to clubs to be clever about how to work it out. Clearly, the majority of, of EFL transfer business is done within England and within the English game. But presumably, this is 
a pretty big blow to teams like Brentford and, and Coventry as well and Barnsley who like to find uh, gems in Europe, who like to find value in European football divisions. And I suppose to yourselves as well as guys who are able to, to do data scouting and video scouting in order to help your clients um, when, when it comes to players overseas? Yeah, there, there will be an impact and it will be a big impact, um, but it's still going to be possible. So um, Brussels and Turkey, they're going to be on the scouting menu all year round, not just at Christmas. <laughs> We've got um, the reason for that is that Turkey, Belgium, Portugal, and Netherlands are all in tier two. Um, or band two, and it's possible to sign any player from a band two league, regardless of their nationality, if they have played over 40% of minutes in that league. So Gustavo Hama, a Coventry player, he'd still get a permit. He played in that league, which got him 10 points, and he played over 40% of the available minutes, which gets him the other five points. So it may be you end up with an African player who's playing in a Turkish league instead of scouting in the uh, second and third divisions in France and Germany. Um, it's a shame for us. We love those leagues, but we have already started investing time and resources into scouting leagues where they're likely to get permits from. Um, it's interesting that Brighton, Leicester and Sheffield United all already have clubs as part of their, their ownership network playing in Belgium. And I'd be shocked if half the Premier League owners weren't already talking to their brokers about looking to buy clubs in Portugal and Belgium and the Netherlands as well. Um, I don't know how it will work at EFA level. I expect Sheffield United will be able to show us next year. But um, we're looking predominantly at clubs being able to buy players from a select group of leagues. And just lastly, in terms of a knock-on effect, can we expect, do you think, young English or British talent to be at even more of a premium going forward? Could clubs like Crew and Exeter and other youth development specialists, are they going to be licking their lips at the, the transfer fees rising for those sorts of players? Where the fees rise is interesting. I think at the top end, the Premier League level, that will basically be unaffected. I think players who would be good enough for a Premier League team will always be a massive premium product. I think what you've got to take into account with the uh, the Brexit is also the double whammy that is the uh, the League 1 and League 2 salary cap. So players under the age of 21, their wages don't count against the salary cap. So obviously, as an ambitious League 1 club, you want to get the best youngsters you can in at that level playing games for you. The problem is, as soon as they hit the age of 21, their wages do count against the cap. Now, we're going to see this, this kind of strange, perverse behaviour where a player up to the age of 21 is very valuable. As soon as they hit 21, their wages become difficult for clubs to manage. And you're going to end up with the likes of Exeter and Crew are going to be fine because they have a, a pipeline they developed over several years to get those players into the first team. You're going to see a lot of clubs, Sunderland, for example, have hired Christian Speakman as their new director of football, who has a, a very good reputation in the game for developing players. So what we might end up seeing is clubs moving from looking to get players in at the age of experienced players, say like 25, 26-year-olds, they're going to be more of a risk than it is to play a youth player. We might even see those under 21, over 21 players moving abroad at a stage of their career they wouldn't have before considered. So we've seen Reese Healy already go from League One to the French Second Division to play for Toulouse. And he's scored, I think, in his last three games. So he's doing quite well there. 
Um, with the capped salaries at £60,000 a year, roughly, in League Two, well, we've got clubs playing in the United States, in Asia, who we've worked with, who can match or better those salaries. So we might end up seeing an exodus of older players from Leagues One and Two and more youth players playing. Plenty to think about. I think it's fair to say very, very grateful that we've been able to have Tim from Market Insights to to explain it for us. I know that there are some of you listening involved within clubs. If you don't think that you guys are ready for this, if you'd like to, to talk to Tim and Market Insights, um, then you can find Tim on Twitter at sbunching uh, and Market Insights is M-R-K-T Insights. Uh, I'm sure that they would be delighted to discuss all and any business prospects and and queries and please do get involved because as you can tell uh, and with Jay as well and with Ram who's a great friend of the pod a lot of very smart guys doing very smart things and cool things within football so thank you so much for joining us Tim. Thank you very much great to be on. Before we get into the League One and League Two weekend there was a story last Thursday afternoon about a bailout for EFL clubs the sort of thing we have talked about a lot over the last few months and finally some answers finally some action now because of when it was announced we didn't have a podcast to talk about it until today but even though it's a few days old there will be some of you listening who maybe haven't read the fine print maybe have just seen some headlines and that's where I'm going to turn over to George Ellick and Matt Slater of The Athletic uh, who well who has written the piece on the Athletic site explaining it all. And George, I want you <laughs> to talk me through Matt's piece. Yeah, I was going to say, to be clear, Matt isn't on the pod today. He's obviously been on the pod a few times, but um, don't just keep listening, expecting him to pop up. But he he wrote a piece along with um, Phil Buckingham um, and uh, Joey Durso and a few others as well um, called I Nearly Vomited, uh, explained why the Premier League's EFL bailout has split opinion. And I'm not going to kind of go into too much detail here, except for kind of outline the facts because you really should sign up to Athletic and read the piece. Um, but it sets out the way that the loans and the grants are going to work. £50 million has been set aside for League One and League Two clubs, of which um, some are kind of evenly distributed grants. Some are based on um, the amount of revenue lost from fans. So, for example, as the piece mentioned, Sunderland will be entitled to more of those grants um, because they averaged about 30,000 fans last season. Whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, I'll let you work out. In terms of the 200 million, that figure is a bit of a kind of misnomer because it's actually what the Premier League clubs are doing is they are paying for the the interests that those loans will accrue. So, sorry, that those loans will accrue. So, rather than it being a £200 million gift or loans given by the clubs, they are just covering the, the shortfall between. So therefore, the loans for the championship clubs are um, are interest-free. The issue here and kind of the I nearly vomited line comes from the fact that it's it's open to clubs who are behind on their tax payments or their PAYE payments. So there are quotes here from someone at Barnsley talking about how they're one of the few clubs who have paid their their uh, wages on time who've paid their tax bills on time and therefore they're not eligible for the loans which in itself is is pretty troubling it's, i think some people are worried that it's rewarding clubs for not um, being up to date with their tax payments which of course isn't necessarily a good thing um there you know there are loads of other issues within it i think the way that the the grants are going to be distributed between league one league one and league two is another as well but that is kind of the crux of it. I guess the, the key headlines here being the loans are only available to, to those who have missed tax payments. The, um, 
the Premier League not actually necessarily providing the funds for those loans themselves but also I think it's about £15 million is the amount of the, of the interest that they will cover and then in League 1 and League 2 the distribution between both an equal um, percentage wise from League 1 and League 2 buffeted by a, a breakdown f- by attendance and then followed up with money there and available for clubs who will need it to prevent them from going bust. And as you know, the Scunthorpe owner says in the piece as well, this ties them over now until the end of Feb. So this isn't the end necessarily, but you'd hope that the, the funds are now in place in order to enable fans, uh, well not fans, but clubs to uh, to survive. That piece on The Athletic really does lay out so many different parts of this and takes quotes from those both very happy and grateful for it and those who maybe have some concerns about the way that it is structured and the way that it's come about. Matt Slater is the best at what he does. It's quite simple and we're so thrilled that that every now and again he agrees to come on the pod and and talk through these things. Um, Theathletic.co.uk forward slash NTT20 will get you 50% off an annual subscription of The Athletic. I think it comes out to two quid fifty a month and I mean to read Matt's pieces alone, it's arguably worth it. I learned so much from them, um, but of course, so many other excellent writers as well. And you can listen to athletic podcasts like the Totally Football League show Extra Time that we do, like the Zonal Marking podcast that I host as well. Uh, You can listen to them ad-free on the site as a subscriber as well. So theathletic.co.uk forward slash NTT20. The Athletic continue to show their support uh, through sponsorship for us. In League One, George... The two wins in a week, teams, there are two of them. And I really want you to wax lyrical about Michael Appleton, manager of Lincoln City. Because in League One in the last few weeks, there's been a lot of storylines and noise, I suppose, about some of the larger sides in the division, in inverted commas. Your Ipswiches, very unhappy with their manager. Your Sunderlands, changed their manager. Uh, Your Portsmouths on quite good form, uh, and various others. And in and amongst it, Lincoln City just chugging away. Second in the table, <laughs> 32 points from 15 games, only 10 goals conceded in those 15, and they've won three in a row. Who who could have called it? <laughs> uh, yeah, it, it, it's great to see. And it kind of feels... It, I've said this so many times. It's, it's just not happening the way I thought it would happen. And I don't know if that is testament to the job that Michael Appleton is doing that he's kind of doing it a different way to the success as we saw at Oxford but again this was it was just a really professional display from Lincoln um, they did have a bit more of the ball than we're used to seeing and especially against a Brian Barry Murphy Rochdale side that in itself might suggest a bit of a change of of, of what we're going to see in future um, weeks. I think George Grant especially was playing a kind of more withdrawn midfield role and was getting on the ball a lot, which has got to be a good thing because he's a very creative player. Um, Great to see Lewis Montsma just smacking it in from 30 yards into the bottom left-hand corner for his fifth league goal. Yeah, completely. But it's just, it's like no frills, this Lincoln side. Um, It's not particularly exciting. There aren't like a, a glut of good attacking players necessarily there. But they're not conceding very many goals. They seem to find a way to score from set pieces or from open play for pretty consistently. Um, and it feels like they're kind of the one team who are maybe just taking advantage of the fact that, that the, the the bigger sides, supposedly, that the sides in the, in the league with the bigger budgets are, are underperforming where they should be with kind of a couple of notable exceptions. Um, so yeah, all credit to, to Michael Appleton. And 
you know, I, I do think there probably will be a sticky run coming at some point. I think it's unlikely to see them carrying on with the way they are at the moment, but they've given themselves a, a hell of a platform to try and challenge to get to get into the championship. Using the soccer stats run-in analysis, this is how you can really sort of find as good a proxy for how difficult a team's fixtures have been um, as, as I've seen available. Uh, it takes the points per game, home or away, depending on where you've played them, uh, of the opponents that you've played and then the opponents that you've still got to play. And it can show you basically compared to those teams around you how difficult your fixtures have been. Uh, and Lincoln's in the top half, the hardest set of fixtures so far uh, in, in 15 games. So almost adds another layer of uh, impressiveness. Their next four opponents uh, are all, all games that, uh, well, they've got Sunderland at home first up. And then Shrewsbury, Northampton and Burton, teams down at the bottom. So if they are to cement their place at the top of this division, and if they're in a really good spot at the moment and playing confident, good football, they should be putting those teams away, really, if, if they're going to challenge at the top end. And if they do, you know, if they pick up another nine points in the next four games, they are going to be pulling away from some of the teams below them. My only note is that according to the Y Scout XG data, they got the fourth best expected goals for and the fourth best expected goals against. And it's that sort of balance that will take you a pretty long way that will always mean that you are keeping the score down defensively and creating decent amount of chances relative to the level uh, going forward. It, it, it's, it bodes very well. And George Grant caught my eye here because... He's kind of playing like a deep-lying playmaker role, certainly a, a deeper starting position than maybe we've seen Grant play before. He's already been their main goal threat for the majority of the season, a lot of those from set pieces, of course. But here he was, spraying passes forward. He played a great ball out left for Teo Eden to set up the first goal, and what an unbelievable season he's having. He's sort of grown in front of our eyes in the last few years from talented young player um, who had good loan spells, who had tricky loan spells and now he's a senior player for this Lincoln side and, and thriving with that responsibility Gillingham also won two games in a week what a turnaround for them in the last few weeks four, Vidane Oliver goal machine four wins and a draw in their last five and big Vidane as you say um, scoring goals for fun what a finish from him the sort of one-on-one -on -one finish that takes the sort of composure and technical skill that we, we weren't sure he had in him uh, but he's thriving. And I mean, just imagine being a centre-back, mate, at the moment. Jill's turn up. Oliver Akinde and Dom Samuel all starting. All big blokes playing through the middle who want it at their head, basically. Gillingham in League One, the lowest possession percentage, the lowest pass completion percentage. One of those sorts of teams that if you're not up for it, we've said it about Cardiff in, in the Championship, if you're not up for it, if you're not ready for it, they're just going to beat you because they will always be bang up for it. They might not always be, you know, they might not always play out their game plan perfectly and there'll be plenty of games where they're just second best. But um, in a certain fixture, such as this one against Swindon, you know, they just overwhelmed them and they rode their luck a little bit. Swindon hit the, hit the woodwork once or twice, but yeah, it's, it's very impressive. Steve Evans, after a really poor run of form, has now got a team that works and uh, they're flying up into the top half of the table. I'm looking forward to their game against Northampton on the 29th of December who have a similar possession statistics. Who's um, going to want it? Who wants the ball? Yeah, I mean, I'm not going to go in 
because it's a big win for Gillingham and it's the end of a good run of form, but there were red flags in this, in this performance defensively. I mean, we've seen Gillingham a few times this season win at home despite conceding multiple chances and, and Swindon had 19 shots in the game and it wasn't even a case of Swindon having loads of chances after they were 2-0 down. Pretty consistently, they were fashioning opportunities. Caveat that with the fact that those 19 shots only equated to 1.4 XG, so it wasn't like they were creating clear-cut chances consistently, but there still is a... a a big feeling in my head at least anyway that Gillingham um, do sometimes really <laughs> live on the edge when it comes to the way that they defend and, and it's not going to be too long until as we saw last time they were doing this a couple of sides put them away and I think that will come and they are you know even this good run of form is does not have me reckoning they're going to be one of those teams who goes on a mazy run like if, you, if you're looking at two sides who are currently mid-table in Gillingham and Blackpool who are kind of on similar points and on similar runs of form, I think Blackpool are like a, a like a way, way better team than Gillingham. And I think that'll play out in the next few weeks. Six wins in their last eight for Blackpool. Why don't you continue just was, telling me yeah. how much you love Blackpool at the moment? I mean, Medine with the goal this week. Yates getting credit on the Quest Highlights show for the unselfish role that he's playing. CJ Hamilton and, and Bez Labala and Sully Kaikai off the flanks it's uh it's all looking pretty tasty isn't and, it and Gretison as well who's just you know he's the he's your boy well he's just come into the club and just basically completely turned their fortunes around immediately yeah well, where's where's he come from i don't know much about Gretison. he is from iceland he's had one cap for the senior iceland side he was brought in from arlesund mm. that famous icelandic club that i know lots about um but just his arrival at the club has made them you know, it was pretty clear they needed a senior centre back. I think it was a bit of a, a bit of a risk to recruit where they did. I mean, obviously they can find value there, and you know, after what we just heard, it won't be probably very much longer that you can do that, um, given the changes to uh, transfer market in, in Brexit. But I, I just think they are. You know, we, I spoke about Lincoln being the side who are maximising the fact that quite a lot of these teams with bigger budgets aren't doing as much. It's easy to forget that Blackpool maybe are one of those sides. Like they have invested heavily in the playing squad in the last year or so I think the, per- the the first 11 on paper is very very good so it shouldn't be a surprise they're doing this but certainly going and beating Fleetwood away is is a sign of intent and yeah their run of form is one that I can see continuing who does this make you think of step into Christmas let's join together we can watch the snow fall forever and ever Smithy no uh, do you not know no you haven't been on social media over the weekend. You haven't been following NTT Twenty Pod. John Coleman. Oh, it was amazing! It was amazing. In I loved his, it. In his interview, I on, loved it. In his interview on Friday with Club Media at Accrington, just broke into song, and he's excited about Christmas. He's happier than I've ever seen him, and no wonder John Coleman is so happy as manager of Accrington Stanley. Last ten games, seven wins, two draws, one defeat. He's a genuine miracle worker, John Coleman. Like. We, we, I, I was working with Sam Allardyce on the Quest Highlights show this weekend. And, I mean, Allardyce is a guy who hasn't actually managed in the EFL significantly for about 25 years. And, you know, he just knew all about John Coleman. And he just knew that John Coleman was a genuine miracle worker. And I think that reflects pretty well um, how the world of football sort of thinks about him. He's not a young manager. So maybe there are younger guys who we tout for bigger jobs and who we talk about more often because of the you know the potential of them and the potential ceiling um, but Coleman is just insane and the squad that he's built and the way that they're playing in a 3-5-2 system is too much for the majority of their opposition to handle at the moment uh, we saw Uakwe 
uh, back from injury. He hadn't played for a long time. Great cross for both goals. Pritchard has been brilliant for them. Uh, and he signed a new contract recently, which will be huge for this club going forward because I think he will be the next one to be sold for a, a decent amount of money. Pritchard is a, a former Spurs kid who Accrington sort of, well, they've given him his first, his break in senior football and he's repaying them. He's as technically good as you'd expect uh, a, a player of his uh, profile to come from Spurs and he's really impacting games and obviously Dion Charles and Colby Bishop up top who they signed for a combined probably 10k 20k at the start of last season um, they're developing their partnership um, Charles getting both goals here today so I basically couldn't love Accrington anymore at the moment uh, and in fact I'm just League One kind of scares me and excites me in equal measure because they're just a lot of teams that I like there are a lot of teams that I think are quite good and it's hard to work out who's going to be the best. Um, but Portsmouth and Peterborough went head-to-head -head this weekend. That was one of the big games in League One. Portsmouth just easily the better side and winning 2-0. Concerning performance from Peterborough again. But but Portsmouth so comfortable, um, so good in their what game plan. What a sensational goal from Tom Naylor, who doesn't look like the kind of guy that would score a lot of goals from midfield. Doesn't look like the kind of guy that would score a lot of screamers and yet just consistently does, seemingly. Jack Watmore, who's a local kid. I say local kid. I mean, he's an established first-team player now, but a local boy um, from Gosport and he scored his first goal in the uh, at Fratton Park in front of fans, of course, for the first time in a long time. He's someone who's had such a tough time with injuries and has spoken really openly about the mental difficulties that he went through after a third serious injury. So I was absolutely delighted to see that. Great win for Portsmouth. Also, congrats to Paul Tisdale. First win as Bristol Rovers manager in the league. 4-2 winners this weekend. Some, some brilliant individual performances from Hanlon and from Nicholson, one of whose goals was like, if you squint, it could be Messi against Getafe <laughs> back in the day. Or dare I say it, Maradona against England. A wonderful exaggeration, but it was a great goal. Yeah. And they, they need more players than just Brandon Hanlon to contribute to their attacking play, Bristol Rovers, if they are to move away from the relegation zone. But a really positive win. Uh, and that leads us on to the game at the Stadium of Light, George, which was pretty ridiculous. Uh, firstly, congratulations to Wigan Athletic, who left with all three points, a team who have been in really poor form recently, up against it on and off the field. One shot in the game. One goal for them, a lot of shots for Sunderland, no goals for Sunderland. Well done, Wigan. Um, but given the appointment of Lee Johnson on Saturday lunchtime, this felt like a, yeah, welcome to Sunderland, Lee Johnson. What do you make of that? I mean, it was it was kind of an extraordinary day for so many reasons at Sunderland. Like, announcing a manager two hours before kickoff and saying that he was going to be in the dugout was, was, pretty, was pretty crazy. Um, do you think he just thought you know, for my sort of statistical purposes, we're playing bottom of the league. I'll get a win and then, you know. No, I mean, I, I just think he must have just thought, you know, why why wait, get in the change room, try and, try and rouse them. And it couldn't really have got off to a worse start. But I like Johnson saying afterwards, yeah, I'm happy I did that. I feel like I've learned a lot about them. Um, credit to Liam Richardson. I think that's his first win as caretaker manager at Wigan over a couple of the spells. But yeah, it's just one of those games where you've just got to hold your hands up and be like, well, what on earth has happened there? I mean, to Wigan, for their credit, restricted Sutherland to, you know, not very good chances in the game. And when you're holding on to a lead at the Stadium of Light, that's, you know, for 75 minutes. That's no kind of short task. So credit for them. I think Will Grigg has just, you know, this was a game made for him. Like playing against bottom of the league, starting up front, 
new manager in the dugout, somebody who is whose football should be way more kind of attuned to, to the way that he would like to play. And he offered absolutely nothing yet again. I'm, I'm convinced there must still be a good League One goal scorer in there. I know Sunderland fans will scoff to hear me say that, but they've only seen one Will Grigg and there just doesn't seem to be any tangible reason why he's so poor now. And I think, you know, one of Lee Johnson's tasks, unless they're happy to cut their losses and get him off the wage bill as soon as possible, will be find a way to get this guy we're paying a lot of money to, the same to Aidan McGeady, find a way to get them to to help the cause. Um, but I do think, you know, even though it couldn't have got off to a worse start, it does feel like everything at Sunderland is, is kind of geared now towards an improvement. They've made the appointment of um, of Christian Speakman. Uh, Speakman, which looks on paper like it, it's got to be a good thing. Somebody who can run the football stuff. I mean, we've all seen Sunderland until I die. If there's one club that needs a, a guy who understands how to run the on-pitch stuff effectively, it is Sunderland. So, and then working together, you'd assume that Speakman would have been in, would have been um, part of the of the. Um, process of, of picking him as well so yeah uh hopefully it's gonna be interesting interesting to see them going to lincoln next up big game that um but i think it's a, it's a good appointment and there should be better times around the corner i obviously went quite big was it last week saying that they should appoint paul cook uh, i don't know the ins and outs of that maybe we can talk to paul cook about that on thursday when he's on mm. uh, with us with danny cowley on our live who stream i thought should have got the job but on yeah. our youtube channel that is quite an interesting one isn't it but mm. i will say that i think i think lee johnson is a good appointment for sunderland as well i would never ever say even with paul cook i wouldn't have said definitively he will turn sunderland around and achieve success with them there are too many managers on the list in the last 10 years that have found it too difficult to do that uh, for me to be able to say absolutely with certainty that that will happen. One of my concerns with Lee Johnson is that the way that he speaks about the game, I really like listening to him. Uh, I really enjoyed, there was a six-minute post-match interview that went on the club's Twitter account. I shared it on our Twitter account uh, on Sunday. I really enjoy listening to him talk about games, uh, when he's being open, when he's talking about tactics. It's just the sort of, um, I guess, discourse that you don't really get much uh, in those post-match interviews so I like listening to it and I thought he, he had some really interesting points and I think a lot of the stuff he said Sunderland fans would have nodded along to what we have seen in the past is when he's talking in those in that manner and results aren't stacking up it can be quite difficult for a fan base there's something about the way that he talks that can rub people up the wrong way and my concern would be that Sunderland fans I don't think they are the sort who will um, who will sort of eat it up, if you know what I mean. I think if, if they think that there's a bit of BS being spoken, they're going to be quite quick on it. And so Johnson, for that reason, needs to start practising what he preaches and hope that the, the players can buy into it. Um, there's probably... There's an interesting discussion about Lee. Um, I think he's considered a, a young progressive manager. Um, he's always been quite innovative in the approaches that he takes certainly to training sessions he's big on the use of data and of um, video analysis and lots of things that would be considered um, part of a progressive mindset and quite a modern footballing mindset when we watched his Bristol City side particularly last season but even when things were going quite well and results were good we never necessarily saw a team on the pitch that that felt like they were being managed by a really progressive, impressive manager. Um, 
And I suppose if, if they had done, he wouldn't be here at Sunderland because Bristol City might be in the Premier League and they might have been in the playoffs last season. But it never looked as good as you wanted it to look at Bristol City. So that's the that's for me what, what I'm interested in seeing with Sunderland. Um, yeah, I mean, the, the one thing I would say on the kind of playing style topic is that uh, last season at Bristol City, it, it definitely changed. Like they, they became a counter-attacking side. But I, I don't think that is the way that Lee Johnson wants to play his football. But we always said they used to do really well, particularly away from home and against teams, you know, with quote-unquote better squads than them. And what held them back was they couldn't beat teams in the bottom half at home. Definitely. But that again, I think that was an issue later on in the mm. time he was there. Um, and I, I don't know if that was because he was trying, because it hadn't worked, because he hadn't got them into the playoffs, he was trying something different. But certainly in the first two years... Well, maybe not after that first few months when he kept them up, but that first couple of seasons after that, the football they played was better. Like mm. They were more dominant in terms of possession stats, both at Barnsley and at Oldham. His teams played very attacking football. So I probably expect, and given what Sunderland fans are asking for, I think we can expect a, a return to that. Mm-hmm. I'd be very surprised. I'd be very surprised if he comes in and coaches his side to um, to be... Kind it's of, not going to be Parky. No. <laughs> or Jack Ross. So that's uh, that's a positive. Um, really interesting times at Sunderland. Really interested to see how they go. Uh, well done to Donny, who beat Northampton, who went down to 10 men quite early in that one. Uh, and yeah, Ipswich's win from behind against Argyle, George, after what you reported, the, uh, the fan poll that said that the majority of fans wanted them to lose in midweek against Oxford so that Lambert was put under more pressure and potentially lost his job. They probably won't be thrilled that they came from behind to beat Argyle and nor will Argyle's fans, uh, whose club are in a really, really poor run of form after starting the season so well. In League Two, George, it was a pretty crazy week in League Two, actually. We had a 6-3, we had a 5-3, we had a 3-3. Uh, goal crazy. Uh, and we'll start with the teams that won two games out of two since we last spoke on the Monday pod. And we'll start with Cheltenham, who beat Exeter 5-3. They were sort of shocked into gear early on as Exeter took the lead through Archie Collins. And Exeter aside, who are the top scorers in the EFL in league play, who have uh, young, technical, exciting players uh, attacking with speed and, and technical skill. And Cheltenham took one look at that. They smiled to themselves. They laughed and they went, yeah, we can do technical as well, but we can also do the rough stuff. We can also launch it. <laughs> and that's what they did. Um, brilliant all-round performance, you have to say, from the defensive unit. Uh, they conceded three goals, but um, you know they, they did well. And the midfield and going forward for, for Cheltenham, they were excellent. Um, SEA Grecian on Twitter, who's an Exeter fan, said, after all the talk of our exciting attack, it was Cheltenham's high energy, fast passing game that ruthlessly, ruthlessly exposed Exeter's fragile and inexperienced defence. And yeah, it felt like a bit of a statement, this George. Um, Cheltenham, we've mentioned before, we're kind of taking them for granted a bit this season because we thought and hoped they would be excellent. They would be a team that racked up a lot of wins, didn't concede many goals, but were good enough going forward to put teams away. That's pretty much what we're getting. And what that means is we tend to talk more about the flashy, exciting teams like Carlisle, like Exeter City, the ones that we're pleasantly surprised by. Mm. And this was Cheltenham just holding them at arm's length and saying like, no, no, it's still us, lads. It's still us. Yeah, I mean, it it was a brilliant performance and result for them it's almost quite unnerving to see Cheltenham winning 4-2 oh, sorry 5-3 because <laughs> it kind of feels like so un Mike Duff so un Cheltenham to concede three goals and, and, and score five but at the same time 
they came up, as you say, against a an attacking side who've scored so many goals recently. A, a, you know, a, a quartet who who are probably becoming kind of the most feared attacking quartet in the league. And rather than try and stifle them, as you say, it was just a case of right, yeah, you do your thing. We'll just make sure that we score more than you at the other end. Um, it's so impressive what they're doing. They managed to find, you know, last season it felt like they were solid. Now with Cheltenham, it feels like they're at worst solid, and at best they're a hell of a lot more than that. Consistently finding ways to win, even when not at their best, like in midweek at Bradford, having gone a goal behind. Um, yeah, I'm really, really impressed with what Cheltenham are doing. At this moment in time, I would maybe say over not Newport that they're they're the most likely, aren't they, to, to get so. promoted? Yeah. Well, we've consistently said we just trust them to be consistent and maintain a good level of performance all season where other teams maybe aren't quite as trustworthy in that sense. Um, Interesting one. They've got Salford and Bolton next up, Cheltenham. Uh, Again, big test for them. And if they get through those, you'd be feeling pretty comfortable, pretty confident, I think, as a Robins fan. Scunny also won two in a week. What a turnaround from them, by the way, in League Two. Uh, ever since we said we thought they were going to get relegated. <laughs> that's um, very, I think I said that, so it's very kind of you to lump yourself in there too. We ride together and die together, George. Uh, they beat Orient, who were another form team in the league, 2-0. Um, and yeah, I mean, so many players playing well for Scunthorpe on this run. I just want to flag up that I, I think the most credit should go to the defensive side of things. Uh, I'm just looking at League Two shot on target stats for the last six games while Scunny have been on this good run. In terms of shots on target four, um, they're actually 17th in the division, 17th or 16th. They've only had 21 shots on target in those six games and they've scored 11 goals. So they're scoring every other shot on target, which is a very high conversion rate, it's fair to say. It's defensively where they stand out. They've only faced... 16 shots on target in their last six. It's the second best record in the division. So if you're looking forward and wondering how far Scunny can go, well, if their defence can be- can behave, can perform like this, <laughs> then they're going to be a good solid defensive side and that yeah. gives them the platform. It may be that the goals don't come to quite this extent going forward unless they start creating more opportunities, but certainly enough to get them away from the relegation zone at the moment. Really impressive win. A nice goal from Alfie Beeston as well. And the third team that won two since we last spoke, George, Carlisle United. They beat Bradford. And I wanted to frame my question to you as, was this the biggest surprise of the League Two season beating the biggest disappointment of the League Two season in terms of the clubs? Bradford, I should say, have moved into the relegation zone. Yeah, I I think so. Although I'd like to point out that maybe I'm not as surprised as most about Carlisle given. (laughs) But yeah, I I think Cambridge and Carlisle have to be the two biggest surprises. And Newport, of course, Mm. because they've been there so long now, it's easy to forget. And in terms of disappointments, I guess Mansfield would be the other one. Um, But there are signs that that's improving. But Carlisle, again, it's interesting with Carlisle because they have that combination where we often praise them for the the brand of football they're playing which is laudable you know they do try and get it down and play and press high it's not attritional league two stuff but it's their defensive metrics that are the most impressive it's a bit okay this might be a bit of a stretch here but you know it's a bit like Leeds it's a bit you know it's similar to the way that we saw Leeds last season in terms of you know the headline stuff is yeah they create loads of chances they're brilliant to watch all this stuff but then 
Um, well, I just said, Scunny, second best record defensively recently, just if you're looking at shots on targets, not necessarily the best metric, but it's a good measurement. Carlisle, they've only faced 11 shots on target in their last six games, easily the best in the division. You're right, they are just shutting teams down. Yeah, exactly. More so than, than fluid going forward. Reese Bennett got the goal. I mean, he's a centre-back who's, they keep scoring from set pieces. Bennett and Aaron Hayden are such a threat. And it was a brilliant interview with Reese Bennett afterwards. He's He's one of those players who's played recently at a higher level than this, who was out of contract and who Chris Beach, I think, would have worked with him before at Rochdale when Beach was Keith Hill's assistant manager. He persuaded him to join the Carlisle Project. And Bennett, I've honestly, I've rarely heard a player talk about a manager that positively, that openly uh, in an interview in a way that almost showed like a bit of vulnerability. Like he was basically saying... I need what Chris Beach is doing for me. I need the love that he's showing me in order to perform at this level. And previous managers have tried to sort of go a different way and it hasn't worked with me. So it just made me think, you know, Beach is getting a lot of plaudits now. And I'm so, so, I'm just so pleased really because different different things that you praise manager, managers for. Man management, to all intents and purposes, from what we hear from Bennett and other players, they're just loving playing for him as a bloke. Tactically, as you've said, he's built a system that's working both in terms of the defensive side and the attacking side of the game. And we know from the summer that he can recruit really yeah. well on a League Two budget, specifically for a style of play that he wants to implement. So three pretty key parts of being a football manager there that Chris Beach, as far as we can see, is absolutely smashing. Also in League Two, not much analysis can be done of Bolton 3, Port Vale 6. Remarkable. But I'm going to drop you in it anyway. What Thank do you, you have to say about that? Just one of those games, isn't it? I, kind of when I was watching it, I thought to myself, like, how are we meant to do an, an effective betting show when stuff like this happens? You know, if anything, Bolton's defence had, had massively improved recently. We know that Port Vale are a side who struggled to create a great deal of chances. So what happens? Nine goals, 33 shots in the game. Um, yeah, I think for Ian Everett, he just has to draw a line through it and say that is a bad day at the office. It's an anomaly. If this game with a kind of if this game is played a hundred times, this would happen probably not even once. So they've got to move on. And even though he'll be frustrated to concede three goals, um Port Vale have to use it as a platform and a springboard to get back to where they want to be because you know, this was a side who many had down as, as being possible promotion candidates who started the season off very solidly and have just dropped off a cliff really. Um, but this should give them a bit of belief that, that all is not lost and, and give ASCII time as well because you have to think that he was probably getting to a stage where there were going to be question marks about his future. Spare a thought for Cambridge United fans. Uh, they were, well, don't spare a thought for them because I, talking about fans being back in the stadium is, is kind of tinged with regret. It's kind of why we haven't gone big on it like many other outlets have because it's not all fans back in the stadium. In fact, the majority of fans still aren't able to go and watch their club because of restrictions. So it's kind of bittersweet and, and I didn't really want to make a big deal out of it where possible because we're aware that many of you guys can't go and watch your team at the moment. And until we all can, I don't think it's fair to necessarily celebrate it hugely. But of course, it's positive steps. Just <laughs> spare a thought, sort of ironically for Cambridge fans, I guess, uh, who have been to two games in the last five days uh, and seen their team lose both games. Uh, welcome back, uh, Cambridge fans. And they, they obviously missed their team's excellent start to the season. They lost to an Oldham side who had five points after eight games and have played another eight games since then and picked up 15 points. So Harry Kewell's really got them going 
Oldham in good form and uh, a number of players coming to the fore. Colchester beat Grimsby 2-1. Uh, Callum Harriet's on unbelievable form at the moment. Um, really, real, just a, a constant threat for this Cole U side. And he's a guy who has always scored spectacular goals. He's always had games where he looks like no one can tackle him at this level. But he's probably lacked consistency, which is fairly standard for a, a winger at this level. But recent form, Harriet is uh, is absolutely smashing it. And Cole Yu on, on some good form as well. And Walsall, brilliant performance from Walsall, which probably more notable than it would normally be just because in recent weeks they've drawn at home with Stevenage. They lost, of course, to South End. those two home games, which you can understand were causing problems, you know, those sorts of results and performances insipid, basically. So this seems quite impressive uh, to go to Tranmere and win 3-1, probably um, outshone slightly by that Port Vale result. But Matt, Vale Sunday scouting report the performance I always hoped we had in us but which looked to be a bit of a pipe dream uh, the 4-1-4-1 worked really well with Bates sitting Kinsella pressing and Rory Holden linking it all together uh, they've got Gordon back from injury now they've got Wes McDonald doing the occasional flash of absolute magnificence as he did on the weekend and they've got Adebayo through the middle so it feels like the the players are there it feels like Clark should be able to get enough from them going forward uh, but that hasn't always been the case. So something to build on there, certainly, for, for Walsall going forward. Good wins, George, for Newport, Forest Green and Salford. But I said we were looking for an hour. We're an hour and 15 again. So ding, 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 ding. 25% over our target. That is not impressive. We're going to keep working on this. Let us know what you think about general pod durations, by the way, guys. I'm quite interested to, to know because it's easy when you do a pod to sort of second guess uh, and to have an idea of, of what you think uh, a pod should be lengthwise and and maybe it's not always how you guys you know maybe you don't care so much maybe you don't mind an hour 15 maybe you would prefer it to be uh, under an hour let us know if you're interested in helping us giving us a bit of feedback at ntt20 pod i think this has been a great pod um and thank you so much to tim from market insights for joining us hopefully you guys got a lot from that chat about brexit and efl recruitment we've touched on a lot of topics from the weekend as well Thank you, as always, for your support for this pod. Uh, another way of showing support for us would be to get involved with our live stream NTT20 questions with Danny Cowley and Paul Cook. On Thursday, we're going to stream it on YouTube, 7 till 8 p.m. We want your questions at NTT20 pod. Anything that you think would be interesting to hear about from Paul or for Danny Cowley, please be reasonable. Please, obviously, do not send abusive messages or snidey little ones if you've uh, got a problem with something um, we want this to be really interesting we want it to be valuable we want them to enjoy it as well so that we get the best from them so please enjoy it buy into it we can't wait for it we're really chuffed to have got them involved so second half of the week will be busy with that live stream with the betting show with TFLSET thanks as always for everything and have a good week